we as humans are only 1% human. 99% of our genes are bacteria. Welcome to episode 36 of About IBD. I'm Amber Tresca. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at age 16 and had J-pouch surgery 10 years later. I'm the IBD expert at VeryWell.com and the person behind AboutIBD.com and the About IBD social media platforms. It's my mission to educate people living with IBD about their disease and bring awareness to the patient journey. My guest on this episode is Dr. Serena Pazricha, who is an adult gastroenterologist with the Christiana Care Health System in Delaware. She also has a background in biological anthropology, clinical research, and nutrition. She's the perfect person to teach us more about the microbiome, about fecal transplants and nutrition, and what all of this means for people with IBD and how it might affect treatment in the next five to 10 years. Hi, Dr. Pazricha. Hi, Amber. Hi, how are you? I'm so good. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. No problem. I'm so excited to be on your podcast and to talk with you. So Dr. Pezricha, we got in touch actually because I uh, was going to come to a symposia that the Christiana Healthcare System was giving on gastroenterological topics. I heard that you were involved in the planning of that. Yeah, so one of the great things about being a um, private practitioner in Delaware is that we have great access to world leaders right in this area in, um, you know, locally in Philadelphia, New Jersey, Baltimore. Um, And so we had Dr. Osterman from the University of Pennsylvania, who's an IBD specialist, come to our symposium to talk to us about IBD. And this was our second annual GI symposium at Christiana Care, and it was a wonderful success. Um, And Dr. Osterman did a phenomenal job of really talking about many of the newer agents that are going to be, um, that we are going to be using more. He talked a lot about um, ustekinumab or Stellara. He also talked about tofacitinib or Zeljans. And these are medications that were used for um, a lot of rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. And now we're going to start seeing them being used in um, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So it was wonderful to hear from uh, thought leaders and uh, learn directly from them. So it was a great experience and uh, we hope to do this again annually. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you got into gastroenterology, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, sure. So um, like you said, I, I am an adult gastroenterologist and I see patients with all different medical conditions. And I, I think that my interest in medicine kind of dates back to a while for me. Um, I always had an interest in science and medicine as a young age. And actually, when I was a child in second or third grade, I was involved in a really serious car accident. Um, I injured my neck and my back. I was actually airlifted to Christiana Hospital, which is interestingly enough, the hospital that I work in now. Um, And I had to spend several months in the hospital recovering. I had to wear a neck and back brace that went from the top of my head all the way down to my hips. And I think that those initial experiences as a child really instilled my passion for medicine. Um, The doctors who cared for me at that time 
just showed so much compassion and love. And it was at that time that I realized that there was really no other profession where I could personally affect and impact a person's life like medicine. And, you know, my doctors gave me a second chance at life. And now it's really my passion to help as many other people as I can um, because of my experiences that I went through. And so that is kind of my initial um, inspiration for going into a field in medicine. And specifically what attracted me to gastroenterology is I love the variety in gastroenterology. So I see and take care of patients with esophageal issues, stomach, pancreas, liver, small bowel, and large bowel diseases. And when I walk into a patient's um, room, I, I really don't know what medical issue they're going to have, and it can be any of those. And that diversity keeps it really fresh and exciting for me. I also um, went into gastroenterology because, you know, when you're in medical school, the first two years of medical school, for those listening, are really spent in the library and studying the pathophysiology of the medical conditions. And those two years are actually really grueling and tough, and it was definitely challenging for me. You're spending like 60 to 80 hours in the library reading test textbooks and listening to lectures. And then after that, in your third and your fourth year of medical school, that's when you get to be in the hospital setting, and you get to interact with patients, and you get to... Um, work with attendings and physicians and get to develop some great mentorship. And it was in those um, third and fourth years where I really saw a lot of my patients having gastroenterology issues. And you have to kind of make a decision at that point. Do you want to go into an internal medicine subspecialty or are you more interested in surgical subspecialty? And they're really different. And I found that at that time, my I loved the process of internal medicine where you're seeing patients with very complex medical conditions. You really have to use your brain to think about um, what to do with their medical conditions and how to treat these patients. But I also like some of the surgical stuff too. I really liked working with my hands and I liked doing procedures. And so that was a, another big draw for me into gastroenterology where I can do colonoscopies and endoscopies. And there's um, a lot of satisfaction when I do a colonoscopy and I see colon polyps that I can remove and I can help prevent a patient from getting cancer. That's really exciting to me personally. So for those reasons, I went into gastroenterology and then also, and probably um, more importantly, I liked the continuity of care in gastroenterology. So there's certain fields of medicine where you see patients and you only see them once or twice. But as you know, gastroenterology is not like that. Many of my patients have chronic issues and I work with them and see them for years and decades. And then I take care of their family members. And it really becomes a family affair. And it's it's a very personal connection that you develop, um, especially in GI, where you're talking to people about their poop and you know sexual dysfunction and pain and bloating and gas. And these are things that most people don't talk to anybody about, you know. So um, it's a very intimate personal connection, and, and I really like that about gastroenterology. So for all those reasons, um, I went into it and, and I love this field. And if there are any younger people listening, thinking about going into medicine, um, like I, 
I would definitely encourage it. And I think gastroenterology is such an amazing, awesome field um, for anybody. First of all, I love that you say poop. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also, that's completely true what you said. I never thought about it in that way before, that you end up taking the care of the whole family. That's certainly been true. My first gastroenterologist has now literally, I think, taken care of almost everyone in my family. You have a background in biological anthropology and nutrition. Nutrition, I get. Um, biological anthropology, I don't really know what that is. Can you explain? Because it sounds fascinating to me. Yeah. So um, I went to college at Harvard, and um, that's where I majored both in biological anthropology with um, a focus on nutrition. So biological anthropology is the study of health and our well-being in social ecological context. And so that is studying that our health is not just um, what we do as, on a personal individual level, but that our health is also influenced by our environment. So our lifestyle, our diet, our community, all of these things affect our health. And um, so that's really the study of biological anthropology, looking at how our health is influenced by our surroundings now, but also looking at how um, people over the last, you know, 100, 150, 200 years, how their health was influenced by their surrounding environment as well. And I think that's so important even now because um, I, I still think it's very true, you know, what we do, what our lifestyle is. You know, and as a gastroenterologist, I always ask people, about the stress in their lives. You know, what else is going on in your life? And especially for patients with IBD, because sometimes you can come in with a flare and it could be, uh, has to be put into context of what else is going on in your life at that time. That's completely true. There's so many things swirling around in the environment and we just don't always know how they're going to affect us. And one of the things that I've heard you talk about in the past, and I'd love to touch on is your interest in the microbiome. Sure. I, I really think that the future of IBD is somehow, some way going to involve our gut microbiome. So just to explain for people who um, are not really sure exactly what the gut microbiome is, the gut microbiome is an ecological community of bacteria, viruses, and fungi that live within us. There are over 100 trillion gut bacteria. So I'm going to say that again. There's 100 trillion gut bacteria within our GI system. And there's over 1,000 strains of bacteria in our gut. And so these gut bacteria, they are living entities within us. You know, they, we used to think that you eat food, it goes in through your mouth, and you poop it out. And that's not true. We're now understanding that our gut microbiome um, has a lot to do with how we process the food and the nutrition. And when you take it down to a genetic level and look at the genes, we as humans are only 1% human. 99% of our genes are bacteria. So when you talk about the future of IBD, and really I think the future of many gastroenterology um, issues and the future of overall health, I think we need to gain a better understanding of the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome was really only um, discovered um, in about 2006. So it's a relatively new idea. There's a lot of research right now looking at how the gut microbiome affects our health. So 
everybody has good bacteria and bad bacteria. And when the number of bad bacteria increase and there's an imbalance in our good and our bad gut bacteria, we develop something called dysbiosis. And studies have shown that when we develop dysbiosis or an imbalance in our gut bacteria, this can lead to chronic inflammation. And it has been shown to um, be in some way linked to many chronic inflammatory conditions. It's been shown to be linked to heart disease and atherosclerosis, pulmonary disease, arthritis, cancer, and of course, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, the stage that we are in right now, we obviously don't know what bacteria, fungi, or viruses are likely to be missing in patients with IBD. Um, and so there's a lot of research to kind of really hone down what strains might be involved. Um, but I think that in the future, we're, we're going to be really personalizing medicine, um, on a, like a, on a very specific level based on people's gut microbiome. Is it possible to change your microbiome? Oh, yes. Yeah. So there are um, definitely things that we can do to improve our gut microbiome. And then there are things that we do that actually also harm our gut microbiome. So um, the, one of the ways that we can unfortunately harm our gut microbiome is with antibiotics. And this is a very difficult topic because many patients with IBD require courses of antibiotics. And then sometimes antibiotics actually helps the disease. But in general, um, if a patient takes a course of antibiotics, the way I look at it is it, if you have a garden that you're growing and you have a lot of weeds and you try to spread weed killer and kill off the weeds, yes, you destroy the weeds. But unfortunately, you also destroy some of the roses and the flowers that you've been trying to grow. And it's the same thing with antibiotics. It's, although it's trying to kill off the harmful bacteria, unfortunately, it also makes changes to our good gut bacteria. And we develop um, antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria in our gut. So the one thing about antibiotics that I um, tell people and caution people about is when you need to take them, you take them. But try to avoid taking extra and excess antibiotics when you don't need to, because that can, can harm your gut microbiome. So antibiotics is one. Um, stress, alcohol, smoking, those have also been shown to negatively affect our gut microbiome. So you want to limit those as much as possible. Now, things that we can do that improve our gut microbiome. So there's um, a scientist named Rob Knight. He's out of um, UC San Diego. And he's developed something called the American Gut Project. And he's collected um, hundreds and thousands of stool samples from people all across um, the country. And he's analyzed their stu stool samples and also taken a lot of um, questionnaires and information about those patients themselves. And he looked as a scientist to try and see what different traits will help and improve people's gut microbiome. And he found that the single greatest predictor for a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity in fruits and vegetables that we intake. So that is something that I do counsel my patients on is um, if they can have a predominantly whole food plant-based diet that does seem to be healthy and helpful 
in developing good, healthy gut microbiome. Now, there's actually a trial going on right now. It's called DINE, D-I-N-E, um, Crohn's disease. It's the first ever national randomized trial looking at two different dietary interventions for Crohn's disease. They're looking at whether um, an all-organic Mediterranean diet is better for patients with Crohn's disease or a more restrictive diet called the specific carbohydrate diet, where you eliminate grains, sugar, and dairy. And so um, it's sometimes challenging to um, treat people with inflammatory bowel disease because everybody responds differently to foods that they eat. So I think these trials that are coming out are going to be really helpful for us to understand what's the best diet in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. But it does seem like a diet that has um, less processed food and less meat and dairy products is likely going to be better. And it's definitely been shown to be better in the general population. So now we'll see specifically in patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. I'm really excited about this research also. I can't wait to see what it comes up with. And then hopefully it will lead to a lot more research so we can start trying to get this figured out because we all, all of us have this feeling that obviously diet affects it, but we just, it feels like we're throwing spaghetti at the wall and trying to figure out what works individually and maybe we can get some some guidelines there. And so in that idea. And, and sorry, and just along those lines, because you mentioned fecal transplant and stool transplant, and that's exactly why people are studying poop transplant right now, because they think it's related somehow to the gut microbiome that maybe potentially people can get better if they have a healthy gut microbiome. So that again, just highlights the fact that gut health is important. We just don't yet know to what degree. And, and I am a firm believer that if we can manage diseases with diet and lifestyle, that's much better than taking medication that has side effects. Now, we're not there yet for most patients with inflammatory bowel disease. We do need to calm down their inflammation. But I think um, in the next, you know, five, 10 years, as we learn more about this, there's a chance that we can um, help a lot of people with mild symptoms based on their diet. So it seems to be going a little bit back and forth with the... Um microbiota transplants. First of all, we probably need to explain a little bit about what that is, mm -hmm. um, because I think there's an impression that it's something that it's not. Um, there's people out there that kind of do the, the, the do it yourself. I know you're probably aware of that. And we need to like warn people that that's not a great thing um, to do. And where we think that uh, this is going for, for people with IBD and where the research might take us. So there, there's a lot of research right now looking at fecal transplants in patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So um, actually, when I was training as a GI fellow, we were um, just starting to do stool and fecal transplants in patients with C. diff, which is um, a bacterial infection that affects the colon. And of course, many patients with inflammatory bowel disease are susceptible to getting C. diff. Um, and when we did it, when we were just starting out, we would actually have people come in, bring their friends or family members as stool donors, bring their own personal blender, and we would blend up their stool and do a colonoscopy and put the stool um, in through the colon. Now we have more advanced techniques for doing stool transplants. There um, are national repertoires of um, stool where we can order and get stool and we can do it via colonoscopy. And there are even now capsules where people can swallow. 
you have to be cautious, especially when you're doing this at home and you're not under medical supervision. And the reason for that is, is we still are not really sure what all happens when you do a stool transplant. So you're putting somebody else's poop and gut microbiome into yours. And that can be great in certain situations, like it has been FDA approved, and we do use it for patients with refractory um, C. diff who cannot be um, fixed or they can't get rid of that bacteria with antibiotics. Um, but we are also learning that there are transmissible diseases. So we screen those people for as many infectious diseases as we can. We screen them for HIV, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, um, and we work very closely with our infectious disease teams. And that's why I caution people when they're doing it at home is we don't know what diseases they can get. Secondly is we are also not sure yet what happens to other organ systems when you get stool from somebody. So there has been shown that if you get stool from a person who is obese, that person, if they were thin to begin with, they might actually develop obesity because of those, the gut microbiome. And so you, we really have to be cautious. And that's why it's very important that we do these randomized controlled studies and follow people for years to see um, how they do, what are the side effects, what are the concerns, and then also potentially how does this help people? And I think one of the things I said was that at this time, we don't know what strains of bacteria are involved. And when you take stool from somebody, you're getting all different strains. So potentially you might be getting strains from somebody that might be even more harmful. Um, and, and that's why the trials are really important. So I, I do not um, encourage people to try this at home. I think in the next five to 10 years, we will likely be doing this and, and um, hopefully we'll be able to select certain strains of bacteria but we're not there yet, but the research is there and hopefully soon we'll, we'll have a better understanding of what strains are involved. And I think too, for patients, because we're now so many of us told that we need to look into probiotics mm -hmm. for IBD. And I feel as though that hasn't really panned out either yet with the research. And you could go into a health food store or even a grocery store now, and there's a whole aisle of of probiotics. Mm -hmm. When your patients come to you, is there any kind of uh, guidance or anything that you can uh, direct them towards as far as far as probiotics go? So um, let me talk a little bit about what what are probiotics. So probiotics are the supplements that you see, like you said, in the um, health stores and the grocery stores. They're, they're substances that have good, healthy gut bacteria, okay? And when you read the, the labels, they might have 15 billion, 30 billion, 50 billion gut bacteria. And that sounds like a lot until you remember that, wait a second, we have 100 trillion gut bacteria. So this is really a small amount. Um, the other thing with probiotics is the, they're not FDA approved, most of them. So we're not really sure what exactly is in them. Thirdly, we have over a thousand gut, gut bacteria strains in our own body. And at this point, we are just guessing as to which strains are the right strains in probiotics. So more than probiotics, and, and there is a limited role for them, and there are a few that have been approved um, in patients with IBD, 
But in general, more than probiotics, I do recommend prebiotics. And prebiotics are the foods that we eat that feed the 100 trillion bacteria that we have and help to feed the good gut bacteria. And examples of prebiotics are um, green leafy vegetables, fermented foods like kombucha, kimchi, sauerkraut, yogurt. Um, and now, and, and those are prebiotics. And, and I think that the research is showing that those are better than probiotics. And again, with probiotics, when you eat them, you might have a positive effect. But when you stop it, your gut microbiome is going to revert back to normal. Whereas prebiotics, you're really trying to change your gut microbiome. Um, so in general, I recommend prebiotics more than probiotics. But again, you have to be cautious, especially if people are not used to taking a prebiotic and having some of these fermented foods. Please start slowly because these are meant to be um, supplements and you don't take kimchi or sauerkraut as an entree size, just very, very small amounts to start to get your body used to it. Otherwise, you can actually have worsening symptoms, you can have bloating, gas, pain, um, and, and then you're not doing yourself any help. Thank you so much for that. That really uh, explained a lot of things to me that I didn't quite understand. And I think the the long lasting effects that really is uh, very attractive, I think, to people with IBD, because the idea that, uh, you know, you have to keep up with some kind of a maintenance uh, can be can be very overwhelming. And so being able to uh, affect your biome on a, on a more long term basis sounds really, really great. Right. And I think I think there's a role for probiotics. And maybe in the future, there'll be even a better role. Because, again, right now, we don't know which strains are involved in different medical conditions and in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And once we understand a little bit more about what strains are missing or what strains are needed, then we can tailor the probiotics for that. But right now, um, like you said yourself, we're just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall and we're just hoping for the best. You're a mom. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about how we can help ourselves to eat a better diet. And then also how can we help the kids? Because I find that to be a struggle with my eight-year-old and my 11-year-old who are wonderful and, and good eaters. But still, uh, achieving how many fruits and vegetables that I know that they are supposed to eat in a day, is really I find it really challenging. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, so I am a mom, I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old girl. And um, I think that we all have to make a conscious effort to incorporate fruits and vegetables into our lives, because otherwise it's really easy to not include fruits and vegetables into our lives. If you look at the average American diet, 60% of the calorie intake comes from processed foods, refined sugars, 30% um, comes from dairy and milk product, and only 10% comes from fruits and vegetables. And what I encourage and I try to do in my family is to flip that. So I want our family to try to eat 90% of the calories coming from fruits and vegetables. And when I talked about um, Rob Knight and this, this study about how fruits and vegetables are so important for our gut health, he found that if the goal is 30 different types of fruits and vegetables in a week, which is a lot. If you can have 30 different types of fruits and vegetables in a week, you will have um, much better gut health. And as a mom, you know, I, I will say 
when I did my medical training and I was in medical school, I was not a healthy eater. And I was probably like the typical American, um, had the typical American diet where I was eating a lot of processed foods, a lot of meat, a lot of dairy. And, you know, I was a physician in training, yet that's probably the time that I had my worst diet. Once I started doing my gastroenterology fellowship and started to learn a little bit about nutrition, and really once I became pregnant and became a mom is when my focus also changed again back to nutrition and health. Because, you know, as many of us, we might not take care of our own bodies as well as we should. But once we have kids, we really want to give them the best health that we can. And the first two to three years of life in a child is the most important for their gut health. Their gut microbiome will resemble that of an adult after about three years of life. So if there are any moms listening with young children, those first few years of life are important. And the way you can foster good gut health in the first two to three years is, if at all possible, breastfeeding. Breastfeeding contains something called HMOs, human milk oligosaccharides. And these are examples of those prebiotics that I was talking about, where the whole purpose of these HMOs in the breast milk is to feed the good gut bacteria in your child. There's no other purpose than to feed those gut bacteria. And we try to replicate this in formula. And I know and I understand that there are certain moms who are unable to breastfeed. Um, but if you are able to, that is very healthy for your child. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is um, there's something called the hygiene hypothesis where especially in America, we are very focused on cleanliness, which can be good, especially in a hospital setting. But for our gut health, it's not healthy. So I know when I was a mom with my first child, I had hand sanitizers everywhere. And if like she had a pacifier or a toy and it dropped, I would make sure to wash it with antimicrobial soap. And what we have found is that you need those gut bacteria, you need those bacteria that you find in dirt and on the ground to actually promote good gut health for yourself. And so by the time my second child came along, I had done more research in this field and understood a little bit better. And I was like, okay, it fell on the ground. That's fine. It's actually good for her gut health. Um, so I think for young moms, just trying not to um, be too focused on cleanliness is, is important. And they've shown that actually kids who have exposure to other siblings or in a daycare environment, they actually have more gut diversity and gut bacterial diversity, which is healthier for their gut. And then last thing is, you know, we've talked a lot about diets. So I, um, one thing that I've incorporated into my life is making a smoothie in the morning. So every morning I put um, whatever vegetables and fruit I have in my house and I mix it up and make it as a smoothie so that my kids can have some and I can have some. And that's a really easy way to get um, a number of fruits and vegetables without it feeling like a lot of work. So that's something I recommend if possible. Yeah, I have a hard time with that. I'm not really a big smoothie fan. <laughs> I, I know they're amazing and, and I make them and I make them for the kids. But um, I have to admit, it's not my favorite thing to eat. You know, it's like just starting small, whatever it is, it, it doesn't need to be that um, you are changing your life drastically because that's stressful. And it should just be like, like small changes. Like they've, they've shown that, you know, like meatless Mondays and little things like that, just one meal a day or one day a week, making changes to incorporate more fruits and vegetables is helpful. And 
my kids like to cook um, because they see me doing it. So I incorporate them into it. And I find that if they help me, then they're more likely to eat it. <laughs> so um, that, that's what I do. And then I also just try to hide the fruits and vegetables and anything I can. I will puree fruits and vegetables and sneak it into anything. Like they want pancakes. Okay, great. Let me um, puree, puree a little bit of spinach and put it into your pancakes and we'll put some berries on top. <laughs> I know that's great. It's like we have similar parenting philosophies, <laughs> I think. It's, it's eat your fruits and vegetables and then I'm also like go outside and play in the dirt. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Oh my gosh, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom and guidance. And you have so much more available uh, through your social media channels. Can you just let everybody know where they can find you and learn more? Yes. Um, I love engaging and talking with people. So come find me. My um, Instagram and Facebook handle is DocSerena, D-O-C-S-A-R-I-N-A. So come find me on either Facebook or Instagram. And I'm happy to chat and talk with you guys um, if you have any issues or questions. I love it. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, super listener. How are you? Special thanks to Dr. Pazricha for sharing her knowledge about poop and how we can shift our microbiome. You can find her on Facebook and Instagram as Doc Serena, where she breaks down all sorts of content and research about digestion, and she makes it available to patients and anyone interested in better gut health. I will put all of the links in the show notes for you. Thanks for listening, and let me know how you like the show. For the truly motivated, you can leave a review in Apple Podcasts, and that will really help me to keep the show going. You can find me all over the interwebs as About IBD and on my website, aboutibd.com and at verywell.com. Coming up on the next episode of About IBD, an interview with Rashid Clark, author and ulcerative colitis patient. I was just in such a bad state where I just, I didn't want to hear advice from anyone. And, and I feel bad about that now because I think it probably would have helped a lot at the time. Remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD.